Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, one. Welcome back to University, everybody, the podcast where we explore the hard-hitting questions about Earth, existence, and the unknown. I'm AJ Perrin, your host. With me this week is... Judson Martin, as always. We as think always. You forgot to mention yeah, that Yeah, as always. Yeah. You, Except for one episode, okay? Real listeners know that it's as always with Judson Martin here. Okay, guys, today we have a special guest, so we're glad you could join us. You guys are lucky, and you don't even know it, because you have had guests on for the last two episodes, which has never happened in the history of university, except, well, I mean, Nate Pinto, special guest, computing, yeah, yeah, yeah. quantum computing, um, throwback. But last week, if you haven't listened to it, or not last week, two weeks ago, if you haven't listened to it, we had Clayton Anderson, former NASA astronaut, join us. That episode was awesome. Almost brought me to tears. Tears. Would really? you say the same, Judd? Um, no. Oh, wow. It was I, really, really awesome, but I, was, don't, I wasn't going to cry. I was going to be happy about it. There were parts of it that were very moving, I thought. That's sure. why I say that. Um, but listen, this week we've got on Vincent Ledvina, who is studying astrophysics at the University of Alaska. He studies the Aurora Borealis and the Aurora, Judd, what is the Southern Lights called? I don't know. Me neither. I didn't know until today. Aurora Australis or Australis possibly. There's a different... Yeah, there's that. Northern Lights and Southern Lights. Um, probably know that. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So he's going to join us today and talk about how that stuff forms, how we can experience it a little bit better in our lives and... Uh, Whatever, a bunch of cool stuff. Um, So, yeah, we're going to run through our news segments first. How about that, Jed? Yeah. This week's news focuses on AI. Specifically, uh, let's start with OpenAI's new model called QSTAR. All right. So, recently, the chief scientific officer and the, like, board, the head board of OpenAI kicked out Sam Altman, who is the CEO right now. And we'll get into why a little bit later. But basically, rumors have started to surface that recent research in open AI has been scaring staff members. Um, and part of their response was to part of open AI's response was to get rid of Sam Altman. Now, some researchers spoke to independent news sources saying that the new model could do math. And you're thinking, okay, I've seen chat GPT do math. What, what about math is really that hard? Uh, and let's get into that. This is a big step. Being able to do math is actually the biggest step towards achieving what's known as artificial general intelligence, meaning artificial intelligence that's smarter than the average human being. And this is why math is so hard. To do math reliably takes reasoning, one, and you have to remember and use information from past steps. So it's not just recognizing patterns based off of what the model knows already. It's able to take new information and logic its way through it, essentially. Actually use a functional intelligence. Yeah. If AI that's able to reason, like an AI model Q star that can do math, if an AI model like this starts to interact with the real world, with real things, whether they're physical or digital, and it can start to set its own goals, that's when people get scared that an AI like this could start going rogue. Yeah, because I mean, then if it can reason by itself, then it's just going to build a nuclear bomb and target. Obviously, that's what it would do, right? Like the logically, step. the first step is just like build a nuke and kill people. Convince people to, to build a nuke for it and then... Yeah, I think we're screwed. <laughs> when you allow it to start being able to reason on its own, you kind of give it almost like a conscience. And I think that's the big step that people are trying to avoid in this is we don't want 
robots to have a conscience, I guess, or, or be able to reason through things that we still need to be better than the robots. If the robots are better than us, then I don't know. Then we have Terminator. Well, so you make a good point because that underlines, right, this conflict of is AI eventually going to get out of our control underlines the big conflict here, which is, is it lawmakers or is it big tech that's going to be regulating AI? And obviously both sides of the party want to come out on top. So back to Sam Altman, the reason people were concerned when they saw him get fired is because if Sam Altman had been worried about something like Q-Star, something that could become a really intelligent model, right? It would make sense for the board uh, with its interests of money in mind to kick out Sam Altman so they continue to make money off of this without regulating it first, without taking a pause to see what kind of safety things have to be put in place. And so that's really where we have to decide, is it going to be lawmakers or is it going to be these people who are deciding what happens to this tech? I guess I didn't know which side like Sam Altman was on, whether he wanted to continue the research or if he wanted to shut it down. Based, saying, yeah, based off of what I was reading, it sounded like like the plot that is there is the board kicks him out to continue progressing the model forward. Which is a little scary because... Well, and I don't think that, I don't, well, I guess I don't know much about AI, so I'm not ready to say anything, but like, I don't think that it's at the point where the AI would be able to like plant itself in other systems so that it could like keep growing and infect other systems. Cause I think that's yeah. where the worry comes from. I feel like if you're testing this sort of stuff, you have to have it in like a almost like a lockdown situation mm -hmm. where it's not able to access other parts of the internet. If the AI is able to go interact with physical or digital things that are in the real world, yeah. set its own goals, we might not know what those goals are going to be. And if it can reason, then it can probably achieve those goals in uh, some form or another. If the AI thinks my goal should be to make money, then it's going to go target really rich people, you know, like yourself. But yeah, right. I mean, one day. So next in AI news, a double AI header today. Two days ago, Google announces Gemini, which is basically their barred AI plus like their newest AI model and it's pretty awesome and there are a lot of demos you can go check out on YouTube I even posted one on our Instagram um, what's special about Google Gemini it is a multimodal model and what does that mean Judd how many senses do you have I have five senses AJ you have five senses you get to experience the world through a couple different uh, means which is cool multimodal a multimodal AI model means they get to do basically the same thing it can take in video input, sound input, text input, basically interacts with you just like you would interact with another human. Um, so it's the next step into AI models being kind of able to understand their environment. There's a couple of cool demos you can see on YouTube and stuff of it. Like, for example, you know, the famous game, you got a ball under some of the cups and you're mixing up the cups. It's very good at, you know, keeping track of and tracking, uh, tracking things like that. And in 50 tested subjects, it was as smart or smarter than the best experts in those fields. So really has leapt beyond any of the AI models that we have currently, like ChatGPT4 or, or whatever you may use. Judge, should we get into our should we get into our brain gains? I got some good ones. All right, fine. Let's do them. Uh, do you want to start? Sure. All right. All right. So um, on Earth, there's a couple of different species of, um, I guess, animals that are able to like outweigh humans in biomass. So one of the interesting ones that I found was ants. So you're saying that ants on the planet weigh more than humans do? Yeah. All right. Well, look at that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. Um, one dumb fact followed by another. So Judd, I did this last episode, but I didn't, I didn't keep it in. The earth is pretty big, right? If I was to remove a billion kilograms, I said last time a billion kilograms a day, but I'm going to change that, okay? okay. If I was going to remove a billion kilograms of mass every second from the earth, every second, okay, okay. how long is it going to be until the earth disappears? We got a week, a month, two months, six months. What are you guessing? 
Well, I think I said on the last one it was 10 to the 26th, and I don't... You said... How What's many 10 to the 26th? I'm pretty sure Earth's mass is something with 10 to the 26th. Sure, maybe, maybe, maybe. I, if I'm... I don't know. That's a guess. Or not a guess, but I'm pretty sure that's right. And then you're saying a million? A billion. A billion? Every second. Gosh, I don't know the numbers then. Like, I think it that would make it hundreds of millions. You're correct. 190 million years is what it would take to get rid of all the mass on Earth. Are you saying that, bro, because you can read my... <laughs> yep. All right. That's <laughs> cheating to use the show notes, um, but I didn't have a unit attached, so uh, you didn't know that it was years. That's 190 million years that it would take to get rid of all the all the mass on Earth. So that I was reflecting on that. I was saying that goes to show you know, how long the Earth has been in development in the solar system to collect that much mass and debris as it was orbiting around the sun and eventually becoming a planet. And then all that mass had to cool down from when it, when it was in its more molten state. It's pretty fascinating. All right. Well, now we're joined by Vincent. So let's get right into it. Vincent, just a quick, you know, who are you? What are you studying? What are you doing professionally sure. for those of you that don't know you? Sure. Yeah. So my name is Vincent Ledvina. People call me the Aurora guy, which actually there's a whole story behind that. But um, I'm a student up here at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. So I'm joining you from Fairbanks, Alaska, where it's currently uh, 142 and it's minus 10 outside and the sun is setting in an hour. So we're (laughs) in our polar winters and um, I'm a PhD student here in space physics. So I'm doing stuff with the Aurora I'm an Aurora chaser. I've been into Auroras and space weather for the past seven years since I was in high school, photographing them. And I'm just really passionate about uh, getting people out there outside to see these Auroras are super, super beautiful. And I'm also really interested in the science as well. Nice. Well, I've been excited for this episode for a while because Judd and I did see the Aurora last spring. Just- I'd say it was, it was pretty weak, but it was, it was still really cool. A cool experience. But obviously seeing it in Alaska would be a much different yeah the dream yeah. um but the 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 real kicker was when we got in the car and we we're like we know a better spot where we're going to see a much better you know we get in the car drive 30 minutes and they're gone never saw it again <laughs> um so sometimes it's better to sit be patient and uh, uh enjoy what you got but anyway what i want to know vincent is what drew you to astrophysics because this is not uh something mm-hmm. that you know just anybody studies do you have some you maybe particular right. story about uh what inspired you to go chase this Oh, yeah. So I feel like everybody who's in the astrophysics field has some like origin story, right? So mine was when I was four years old uh, in 2003, there was a really, really big solar storm um, on Halloween in 2003. So um, it was one of the biggest ever recorded, just actually dubbed the Halloween storms. And I actually saw the Aurora from my uh, hometown in Woodbury, Minnesota. So I grew up in the Twin Cities. Yeah, so I saw the Aurora right from my backyard. And, you know, I kind of remember that a little bit. Just remember these like kind of shifting lights in the sky. And then I have just always been into the outdoors, science, uh, STEM, and photography. I kind of picked up when I was around 14, 15 years old, um, just taking photos on family vacations and things like that. So One thing led to another, I kind of combined all my passions down into astrophotography and um, then photography of the Aurora, which is sort of this like sub genre of astrophotography. And that was around 16, 17 years old. I was still in high school. And um, then when you're doing Aurora photography, you know, in order to see the Auroras down in Minnesota uh, or in Iowa, Michigan, any of those mid latitude states, you have to know when they're going to come out because they're not out every single night. So it took a lot of um, you know, a lot of digging through these resources. And through that, I kind of learned some of the science. And I was like, hey, this is really cool. So when I went to school at University of North Dakota, that's what I committed myself to at that point was 
um, doing something with space physics and space weather. Nice. This is something that has probably taken you uh, to very many special places. Um, can you recall like maybe yeah. the coolest places that you've gotten to travel uh, going to see stuff like this? Yeah. So the coolest place I've been to see auroras was Churchill, Manitoba. Um, it's on the Hudson Bay. And the only way you can get there is by plane or train. And since planes are very expensive to these remote areas, I took a train. Um, I've been there twice. So the first time I took a train 16 hours from Thompson, which is sort of the last place you can stop. Um, it's like the end of the road, so to speak. So 16 hours from Thompson, but then that was in March of last year. And then I went there again in September of last year. And I took a train 40 hours from Winnipeg. So um, it was pretty extreme. Just getting there was a lot of work. And then once you're there, I was there in September. That's polar bear season. And literally the first night I got off the train, there was a polar bear like right down the road that we saw. And it was it, it, like in the Midwest, you joke about hitting deer on your way home. In Churchill, yeah. it's hitting polar bears because it was actually <laughs> in the road. We almost hit it. Um, so that was pretty cool. That's probably the most extreme place I've been, but I've been up to the Arctic Circle too here in Alaska on the Dalton. That's a pretty scary road, but it's it's pretty it's pretty cool at the same time. Have you been able to see the um yeah, I think somewhere near Alaska it's like the 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 day where it's like never the sun never rises. Is that what it is, right? Yeah. Have you experienced that mm -hmm. before then? So I've never been so that happens above the Arctic Circle, a little bit above the Arctic Circle. I've never been um above the Arctic Circle around the solstice. I've only been in like February, March. And here in Fairbanks, we don't get true polar nights in the winter. We we get down to three hours and 46 or 47 minutes of daylight at the solstice. Right now we're at four hours and 10 minutes. Um, so, I mean, it gets basically to be completely dark 24 seven. It's kind of rough. I mean, you know, this is my first winter, full winter up here. I was, I was here last winter too, but went home for a couple months and I didn't think it was going to affect me a whole lot, but just this week, I realized how tired I really was, you know. People, this is the time of year where people are complaining like, damn, it's dark at five o'clock already. Like, I'm just so tired. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with myself. And um, man, it just move a little further north and, and, and just wait. It gets worse. It just, just a little. Just yeah. a little. It, yep, it does. But then in the summer, it's the exact opposite. We have sun pretty much the whole time. So. All right. Well, Vincent, you are, um, like you said, you have a tag. It's the Aurora guy because you do a little bit of content yeah. creation, right? And so we're going to shift gears a little bit and oh, talk yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I guess the viewers kind of want to know, how did your journey as a creator begin? So it kind of happened just, um, I don't know, kind of by accident, I would say. You know, I've always been into, been into photography and sharing my photos online, uh, probably in the start of my freshman year at UND is when I started to take photography seriously. And then definitely during COVID when I had all this extra time, that's when I sort of transitioned my Instagram. That was the first platform that I sort of posted on. I transitioned that from a personal more to like a content uh, creator account. And then, you know, I started posting more reels, uh, short form content, because that's what people like nowadays. And Tell me all that, of a sudden, yeah. one of my reels, because it was on Instagram, uh, just blew up. And I went from, I think, probably like 5,000 followers to well over 20 or 30,000 uh, followers. And actually the first reel that blew up wasn't even an Aurora reel. It was just some general like nature uh, reel. You know, it was just a bunch of these like cool clips that I put together and, you know, had a nice uh, sound over it. And um, people found my account. And then at that point I was kind of thinking about doing Aurora content full time. I'd never been to Alaska yet or really seen a good Aurora, but I was out in you know, the farm fields in North Dakota doing my photography. So I started sharing more of that. 
people liked it, just kept sharing it and sharing it. And then eventually I had enough content where I could post every single day. And that's really what changed everything was when you post every single day, um, you know, that really tells whatever the algorithm gods, you know, like you're serious about this and it starts pushing your stuff to more people. So um, around two years ago is when I would say I first started gaining momentum. And then since then, it's just I've just been keeping it up as much as I can. Yeah, I can't tell you how similar your story is to our story. It's like one real really just like some something about it. Instagram's like, this is it, you know? Yeah. send this yeah, out yeah. to people ours was the worst was video really i'd funny. ever made really goofy it was yeah and it's just like damn you're you, you want it to be one of those videos you put some time into you're like man we think this is going to hit home with viewers and then it's like nope it's it's a shit post is what it is it's like <laughs> yep, it's and, just something random sometimes <laughs> yeah and then and then again you were saying uh just like overnight that that really kicks off and then the other thing is posting every day like wow there, oh, yeah. there are people that are listening to us right now that would not have found us if it's not for that consistency and if you're listening to this and you mm-hmm. found us on Instagram, then you're like, whoa, that's some full circle. Yeah. Right. Let's jump into, let's jump right into the Aurora now. Uh, a, a bunch of our listeners are going to be people who have never even gotten to experience this. Um, what is really yeah. the underlying process here? So let's talk a bit first about why these exist. Yeah. So the Auroras have been going on for millions, maybe if not billions of years. And basically what it is, is the interaction of charged particles from outer space, actually within our own um, magnetic field, our own magnetosphere, which is kind of like a protective bubble around Earth. These particles come in along field lines that are at the north and south poles, which is why you get auroras um, around the poles and not at the equator, for example. And um, they form in what are called auroral ovals which are centered around the geomagnetic uh, north and south poles. These particles come down, they hit our atmosphere, so they eventually have to, you know, penetrate in and they reach a level of where the atmosphere is thick enough where they have to run into something. And based on the gas that they run into uh, determines the color of the aurora that's produced. So uh, when these particles hit the gas in our atmosphere, there's a process called ionization that occurs and a byproduct of that is light photons. So For example, oxygen at higher altitudes produces red, oxygen at lower altitudes produces green, Um, nitrogen even lower than that produces the cool pink um, auroras that you often see when it's like dancing and stuff. And then uh, really rare color is blue, and that's formed by sunlight hitting um, upper level nitrogen. So that's one that you can really only see if the aurora is right after sunset or right before sunrise when you have a little bit of sunlight still uh, right below the horizon. Yeah, that's really cool. I remember one of the, I guess, colors that stood out to me was just the purple that we saw when it, yeah, it, it yeah. was in Iowa. So mm-hmm. I guess you're saying that meant it was reaching the lower levels of the atmosphere? Yeah. So it depends on what kind of purple it was. Because if it was like, if, if it was a purple sort of above the green, then that could have been uh, the oxygen sort of mixing with some of the nitrogen. So some of these like purple and even orange colors are sort of a mixing of the different colors. Okay. So you know, these aren't hard boundaries, but you can get sort of some overlap. Um, but yeah, I don't know when you saw that, but I saw a lot of pictures recently of um, auroras just going nuts down there. So, yeah, well, I mean, there you have it. Astrophysics research where purple isn't always the same purple, you know. <laughs> um, yep. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> let's can you tell us a little bit about so you mentioned the the magnetosphere. What mm-hmm. is what does it do for us uh, here on Earth? One and two, if it's there, why does sometimes these particles that you're talking about uh, hit Earth in the first place? Yeah, so Earth's magnetosphere is like a protective bubble. Essentially, it's like a force field. 
and it's formed by the fact that we have a magnetic field. So, you know, inside Earth's core, uh, there's what the iron and nickel dynamo producing the magnetic field that uh, creates basically a bar magnet inside of Earth. So you have magnetic field lines flowing out of the South Pole and then wrapping around and flowing back in the North Pole, just like a bar magnet. So, you know, if you imagine like the canonical picture of like iron filings around a bar magnet, that's essentially what our magnetic field looks like in outer space. Um, and then you have the solar wind, which is like, if you imagine the sun as this really um, like hot cup of coffee, for example, uh, the steam coming off of the cup of coffee is like the solar wind. It's just constantly streaming out from the sun and it's charged particles. And those charged particles have their own magnetic field. Um, so you have Earth with its own uh, magnetic field and its own little force field. Then you have all the solar wind coming in, in, in and hitting us. And depending on the orientation of the magnetic field in the solar wind, if it's pointed south, our magnetic field is pointed north, just naturally. Earth's own magnetic field pulls from the south pole to the north pole, so it's pointed north. If these two field lines come together, there's a fancy process called magnetic reconnection, and that basically allows the particles from the solar wind then to enter our shield, our, mag our magnetosphere. So that's how you can get uh, particles entering, which eventually, uh, through all these processes, if you're interested, it's called the Dungy cycle. Um, that's how we get auroras is it depends on the magnetic field orientation of the solar wind versus earth. If they're opposite, they can kind of connect together. Then the particles can enter in. I guess something that maybe I've heard of is that the, the earth's magnetic poles will actually flip every, I think it's some very mm. large amount of time. I don't know. What do you know about yeah. that? I guess, how does that happen? That is, yeah, so there is sort of like that mystique and a lot of, um, I don't want to say conspiracy around it, but yeah, there sure. is a little bit of conspiracy around, you know, how fast will they flip? Are they, are the magnetic fields weakening? From what I know, um, you know, there is a magnetic field reversal that will happen at some point. Right. And if you look at the magnetic uh, poles over time, it seems like they're sort of accelerating um, they were once over Northern Canada and now they're closer to Russia. And that's just within the past 50 to 60 years. Um, but I don't think people have to worry too much because these magnetic field reversals take a long time. So not within our lifetime, I don't think will this happen. It might take thousands and thousands of years, but one cool byproduct of that might be if the magnetic poles are over, let's say Iowa, for example, you might get auroras all the time in Iowa, which would be really cool. Yeah, sure. Um, so I don't think the magnetic field is weakening because a lot of people say that, like the magnetic field is weakening and we're all going to die, right? Those are the headlines. It's just kind of changing orientation, um, essentially. So nothing to really worry about, but it is cool to, to look at the science. So nothing's flipping overnight. Nobody's, nobody's going to perish no. in some giant solar storm, you're saying? No, well, no, think, no, no. Think I should have had good. you on a couple months ago. Like I haven't slept since then, since I first started hearing these headlines. But whew, now I can, <laughs> I can finally rest. Judge, should we move on to talking about space weather now? Yeah, sure. How does I guess space weather affect us here on Earth, other than the aurora borealis, or in any other ways? I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, space weather really has a lot of effects that people don't know, right? I mean, the average person probably has no idea about space weather. They know what snowstorms and terrestrial weather are, but they don't even realize that there's stuff in space. Um, so really, yeah, the main benefit of space weather is that it gives us auroras. But um, when you have really big space weather events, like coronal mass ejections, for example, solar flares or radiation storms, um, and also coronal holes, those are the four. Those are the four main space weather ty uh, types. Uh, the increased radiation, for example, could be a, a risk for 
uh, astronauts on the ISS or other space stations. It could be a risk for uh, high altitude and high latitude um, biologics like uh, people uh, in airplanes flying over polar routes. There's actually been uh, radiation storms so severe that um, airlines like United and American have diverted polar routes because the dosages might be above certain thresholds. And then for solar flares, it's basically like a big flash of light coming from the sun. And that can cause a lot of ionization. It basically creates a layer in the atmosphere where, where radio waves cannot propagate. So you have a lot of issues with high frequency communications, which are used a lot by emergency responders. Um, and then also that scintillation from the signals that can affect GPS as well. Um, so a common thing is underneath the Aurora, you might have issues with um, Google Maps, for example. I've actually experienced that oh, wow. where the GPS isn't good enough and you end up in a mountain versus on the road or something. You oh. know, Google Maps tells you to turn left into a river. Um, <laughs> and also you have issues with drones too. I've, I've actually, I've spoken to somebody who was flying a drone underneath a really strong Aurora in Iceland and he lost his lock on it and it went out into the sea and just totally went away, just died. So that happens. Besides that, you know, there's a lot of issues for power grids too. Luckily, we don't have to worry about the power grid situation. But um, when you have really strong auroras, you have really strong currents in the atmosphere. And just due to, it's called Faraday's law, um, you get really strong currents then in the ground too. Um, so those can disrupt power grids. But the good thing is that this all sounds a little bit scary, but we've known about this stuff for years, hundreds of years. So luckily there's, you know, a lot of funding put into monitoring space weather and also being prepared for it. So you said we might not have to worry about the power grid uh, kind of situation. Why, why is that? Yeah. When you have these currents in the ground, they only really affect um, really long runs of power lines because it's like an integrated um, voltage, essentially. So uh, if you have really long runs of power lines, like in rural areas, or if the ground is super conductive, uh, that's when the power grids become susceptible. But there's this misconception that um, solar storms are like an EMP that'll fry your cell phone or fry your your car or something. You know, all the electronics in cars. I've I've actually seen there was a History Channel uh, documentary where it talked about that. It's like, oh yeah, we might get sent back to the Stone Age because it's going to wipe out all electronics. And in reality, it's only the really long runs of power lines that are affected, and really old transformers. And I mean, we don't. Unless you're in the power grid industry, which in that case, that you know, then you have to worry about it. The everyday person um, isn't really going to have to worry. Yeah. So the internet's not getting shut down. You're saying for for months, as as headlines will say. Yeah, that you know, I have to look into that more because I think that was based on some research paper that really, it, you know, a lot of these research papers and um, science in general nowadays is sort of fed by the media. It's sort of this like. I don't know, positive feedback loop, right? Like if you have a really entertaining and uh, clickbaity article title for your paper, it's going to get a lot of clicks, a lot of downloads um, that factors into certain, you know, indices, which scientists measure as good or bad. Um, so, I mean, the internet shutting down, I think there, I think there was some argument with that, that had some credibility, but it was like a what if scenario on a what if scenario on a what if scenario, very unlikely. So you make no, you make such a good point because I was just looking at these numbers recently. The the change from, say, the early 2000s to now, the number of papers that have gotten sent back because or or mm. taken down because 
lo and behold, the authors in some way uh, or another were fudging this data a little bit, right? And so that's the the crisis in research right now is exactly as you said, if there's some positive feedback loop with the media, we have to be worried about people who are willing to alter the truth a little bit for some some personal gain. And so that becomes a problem when science is supposed to be the objective truth that we're validating things on. Right. Well, and also too, you have to look at the journals that these things are published in as well. Like I remember during the COVID um, well, still ongoing, I guess, pandemic, um, you know, all these journal articles were coming out and people would say, oh, but it's peer reviewed. And it's like, well, what journal is it in? You know, is yeah. it some credited sure. journal? Is, is it some accredited journal or is it some random whack job journal? I mean, uh, I, I get emails all the time from these journals that I've never heard about that are like, please publish in our journal. We'll basically accept it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't even matter what the research is. We just want papers in our journal. So just because it's peer reviewed, you know, who were the reviewers and what journal is it? Is it backed by big, you know, credible scientific organizations or is it just some random thing? So and then it's also important. And the second layer of that problem now, too, is uh, what's the funding for the journal? Because there's some yeah. journals where it's like, hey, you have to um, if you want to be able to read our journal, you pay us. OK. Maybe yep. that's a conflict with open access to information. Maybe that's a little bit of a maybe that's a bit of an issue that we need to look into. Or it's like, mm-hmm. okay, we'll make our journal free, but we, the, the the authors have to pay or something like that. And then it's just this whole system where it's like, how come we're driven by money and not the desire to share information with other people? Uh, which is yeah. you know a, a bit of an issue, especially for people who aren't associated with universities or some other way to get free access to these journals already. If you're a regular yeah. citizen and you, you want to learn about something that might be a potential carcinogen to you and you can't because the journal says you have to pay yeah. $15 to access this article. Well, that might be the thing that turns you away. And although that journal needs money to operate, the there's huge drawbacks. Yeah. And then it becomes the only source of information is, sure, they've got it from that article, but it's the media who then maybe puts their own spin on things. Yeah, amplifies anything. it, yeah. But yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's It's definitely a complex issue taking us back to um, some more space weather stuff. The sun, I guess, isn't very static. It's going through these cycles of it'll reach a solar maximum or a solar minimum. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. So the sun um, is sort of on this solar cycle. So it's on average every 11 years will it reach this um, maximum and then there's also a minimum. So it's just like a sine wave like this. It's just like um, you have a solar max, solar min. The last solar maximum was around 2014. And I say solar maximum in quotations because I like to call it a high season and a low season because there's really not one, you know, defined date that the sun is the most active. Like you said, it's very, very variable. You know, even in solar max, you can have periods where it's really dry. You know, there's not much activity and you can have really active weeks. So even on, you know, it's not like solar max is just one week or one month or even one year where it's doing everything and then the rest of the time it's dead. Uh, but right now we're in a solar max or a uh, high season. And so we have more of these events happening on the sun, more solar flares, uh, more coronal mass ejections, which are like big explosions of particles uh, from the sun, which can give us the best auroras. And yeah, over the next couple of years, we're going to be in this high season and it's going to be a really, really good time to see the aurora. Let's keep talking on that then, the the sun. What mm-hmm. I'd like to know is how do you track what is the solar maximum? What's the solar minimum? Because you, like you said, it's variable. Yeah. We can't even pinpoint a date where it's going to mm-hmm. be a maximum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So on a sort of climatology standpoint, um, scientists track solar activity in a number of ways. Um, the most common and probably familiar way is with sunspots. So 
Uh, sunspots are areas of really, I guess, concentrated magnetic fields. And they, you know, the more sunspots you have, basically the higher chance of solar flares and coronal mass ejections you're going to have. So over the 11 years, you'll see a sunspot maximum around the high season and the sunspot minimum around the low season. Um, and during the solar minimum period, you might have no sunspots. And during solar max, you might have hundreds. So it really is a huge difference. Um, and then to forecast, uh, you know, solar activity, there's really no way you can forecast a solar flare because they just happen randomly. But if you see a lot of sunspots or really sort of angry looking sunspots that are super magnetically complex, uh, those regions have a higher chance of flaring. So you can't actually predict the flare itself, but you can say we, you know, we might have a 20% chance of an X flare today, um, just based on what the sunspots are doing. And then with coronal mass ejections, some flares do release CMEs and some flares don't, um, but we can see those coming off the sun and then we can track them. And those usually take one to three days to get here. What does this mean for people who chase auroras, right? This has got to be pretty a pretty good time for you to be a yeah. person who's doing content creation and, and, and right, the sun's kind of delivering you a gift in the form of high charged particles. I don't know how I timed it, but um, yeah, the next few years are going to be super good for auroras. Next two years, um, I mean, there's just so much activity nowadays. You just don't really know what's going to happen. Like sometimes I'll I'll look at the solar wind data, and all of a sudden there's like a little mini CME that just popped out of nowhere that you know probably came off the sun. It was too small to really see, but these things are happening all the time. I mean, there's little CMEs, you know, little puffs of uh, charged particles coming off the sun towards Earth all the time. Um, up here in Alaska, I mean, we get auroras even during solar minimum. We get auroras every single night if it's clear, regardless of really what the solar wind is doing. Um, but those really big storms, like the ones where you get aurora down in Iowa, Minnesota, Michigan, even Nebraska, or actually, I think like just two weeks ago, I saw a post from um, like Tucson, Arizona, and even like that valley. Like oh. you can get auroras pretty far south in the yeah. U.S. Those big storms don't usually happen during solar minimum. It's pretty rare that you get a big storm like that. So solar max in the high season of the solar cycles, when you get all of those really extreme events, um, that'll give you auroras clear down to mid latitudes. Do you ever get tired? You said you see it almost every night, you know, do you ever get tired of yeah. seeing this? Yep. Is it, or is this like, you know, the old adage is like, you never get tired of how beautiful a sunset is because that's just what it is. Yep. It's beautiful. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just say that. Yeah. You never get tired. You never get tired of the aurora. I mean, the thing about the aurora, right? A sunset, for example, you know, is beautiful, but the sun is always going to go down in the same way. And it's predictable. I mean, with math, you can figure out exactly the angle. The sun's going to go below the horizon, whatever. With an aurora, it's so dynamic. There's never two nights that are the same. There are patterns, sure, but sometimes the aurora doesn't even follow the patterns. So um, when it breaks those patterns is actually when the science questions emerge. And that's really cool, too. But yeah, I mean, I've seen the aurora probably hundreds of times. I saw it last night, for example. I saw it the night before. I saw it the night before that. Um and every single night's different. And like last night, for example, the conditions um, and the the actual aurora didn't quite line up with what my expectations were. So every single night, I'm learning something new, which is just really cool to me. Speaking of breaking patterns, there is something called Steve, which happens to have arisen from you know a couple oh, yeah. scientists like yourself who were a little confused about uh, phenomena that they were seeing up in the sky that they actually mistook for something called a proton arc. Uh, before we start talking mm -hmm. about Steve, what, what is a proton arc? Yeah, that's a, it's kind of a debate because Steve and a proton arc are kind of the same things, but Steve seems to be a bit stronger. So 
Yeah, the story goes that, you know, scientists knew about this proton arc for a while, but they didn't think that it could actually be seen. They didn't think that you could see it with your own eyes, and they didn't think it was strong enough to, you know, produce enough light, essentially, uh, to create an emission that you could see. So photographers, mainly in the Alberta Aurora Chasers, um, were taking pictures of this thing. They didn't know what it was, so they started calling it Steve. Um, and the story, I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Over the Hedge. Yes. Yes. I read this. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So basically, yeah, Steve was named after whatever the like mysterious figure over the hedge was. <laughs> it's actually where the name comes from is the movie Over the Hedge. And it stands for Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement. And when these photographers went to the scientists and said, hey, we're, you know, we're photographing this thing. The scientists said, oh, that's a proton arc, you know, whatever. Like it, we've seen it before. We've studied it. And they started telling them, no, we've actually seen it with our eyes. Like, here, here, here are the photos. They started looking at the photos and they're like, oh, crap, this is something a little bit different. You know, it's similar to a proton arc, but it's not it's not the same thing. Um, so that's when they said, OK, this is this is Steve. This is a this is a, a new phenomenon, completely different than an Aurora. Even it's actually not even an Aurora. Um, it's not created by the same physics either. So um it usually appears east to west, whereas the aurora is to the north. And it's really cool because up here in Alaska, we don't see Steve. So it's actually one of the few times where folks down in Minnesota, Iowa, you know, mid-latitudes, southern Canada, northern U.S. actually have something that we don't. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty cool. I don't know. One of the things that excites me about just science and things like that is what if no one was there to witness that? You know, that would still be right. something that we you know, didn't witness. No one That's understands. That's the tree falling so in the cosmic forest. Yeah, there's always Steve. something yeah. new to be ex like discovered or explored, and some of those go unnoticed, and we'll have to wait till they happen again to see them. So, you know, here I am thinking as I'm reading the art, my my first article about Steve. I'm like, this looks like the aurora. You know, this looks. Here I I'm not I'm sitting across from an aurora scientist and telling saying these look the same. But tell us again, just what's the what makes them different physically from a from mm -hmm. a scientific standpoint why do we say that steve is different than the northern lights yeah so i i won't get too much into the science but um just really basically uh sort of like the green and red auroras i was talking about earlier like with the oxygen and the nitrogen that's formed uh via a process called particle precipitation so basically what i was saying earlier is when you have particles coming in from outer space and they hit the atmosphere, they're kind of precipitating like rain from a cloud, for example, right? It's falling down. And then Steve is not particle precipitation, or at least the ribbon, um, like the sort of whitish purpley uh, mauve, as it's called, ribbon. That's not formed by particle precipitation. Actually, what that is, is a really hot river of plasma in the upper atmosphere. And it's so hot that it's um, emanating light. It's just glowing. So it's a little bit different. It's 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 not particle precipitation, and it's part of this subaural ion drift hot plasma flow phenomenon. So it's really cool. Um, so maybe another question I have is, well, how does the plasma get so hot? What's you know, it's you said it's the river of hot plasma in the yeah. atmosphere. Maybe that's way too way out of the scope um, for us, which is sometimes the that, answer we like to hear. I don't know that one. Okay. Yeah, that is, it's, 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 it's not out of the scope. It's just part of the active research. So, I mean, it depends on who you ask basically. So like that's, you know, there was just a paper that came out on that, um, a few days ago it was actually using really high frame rate video of Steve. And now they're finding that there's little like fingers in Steve, um, like little, uh, filamentary structures in the band that weren't visible before. So that kind of changes, 
you know, what we're thinking about if it's just like a, I don't know, a flow or if the flow has little flow channels. I don't know. So, I mean, that's part of the active research. And it's such a new uh, phenomenon, too. I mean, Steve has been around forever, but it's not really been actively studied until 2015, 2016. So it's really, really young. The field's really young. So you mentioned that it was made out of like plasma. So is is mm -hmm. the aurora borealis also like because plasma needs a lot of heat to be created right so is the aurora borealis also generating like heat i guess when it's hitting the atmosphere yeah okay yeah yeah yeah, definitely so yeah plasma i mean yeah plasma is just a charged gas basically so there's plasma in our atmosphere there's plasma basically everywhere outer space the sun is uh gas and plasma um and the aurora when it's generated it does produce heat it's actually called joule heating um, and this is a cool little tangent, but when the aurora is really, really active, it's creating all this heat. It's actually increasing the density of our upper atmosphere and satellites that fly through a really strong aurora or right above a really strong aurora actually uh, experience a little bit more drag. So they kind of go down in altitude. So um, there's some research and modeling being done right now that's taking um, auroras into account for these satellite drag estimations, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So yeah, it does heat the upper atmosphere, the aurora. Aurora research relies heavily on something that I think you have referred to, uh, which it's, this is a term, but I uh, was first introduced to it through you, which is called citizen scientists, right? Could you talk to us a little bit about mm -hmm. that and their yes. place in the aurora field? Yeah. And this is why I'm like super passionate about auroras, because it really connects so many different types of people. You have the fundamental science, which is kind of the track that I'm doing right now with my PhD. But then you have photographers who are taking videos with their cameras that they bought on Amazon of the Aurora uh, that are providing new data to scientists because um, obviously with the Aurora, you can see it, right? And it's one of the things where you can take photos of the Aurora. And if you see a really weird type of Aurora, it's just a matter of having that observation that's so valuable. Like you were saying, what if, what if nobody sees it? Well, nowadays, cell phones can take photos of the Aurora, can even take photos of Steve. And we're seeing all these new phenomena just cropping up, especially as we're entering solar max, we're getting these huge geomagnetic storms. And during these storms, we have really weird auroras that pop up all the time, like the purple aurora that you saw. I mean, that's scientifically valuable. And having more photos, more observations of these auroras, you know, gives us so much information that we can work with because a lot of the science grade instrumentation, a lot of the cameras that scientists use are all up in northern Canada, Alaska. Uh, Iceland, Norway, but during these geomagnetic storms, the aurora is further south of that. So now we're relying on photographers and ordinary people to give us the data. So it's really cool. I mean, I, I don't I don't think people realize that a lot of these Steve papers, for example, a lot of these aurora papers, the photographers are listed as co-authors on these papers. Oh, cool. Like the one that was just released, the photographer, um, Alan Dyer, who's a good friend, he took this video. He's the second author. I mean, these people are getting credit, thankfully. And, um, yeah, people are making a difference. I mean, if you take a really interesting video of the Aurora, you think it's you think it's a weird Aurora, post it. And a scientist might respond and say, hey, like I want to collaborate on this. This is this is right up my alley. This is right in my field. It's really cool. So your call is to just say, get out in there and take some pictures. You hear something weird is come and go and take a picture. Yeah. Of it. yeah, yeah. And there's um one 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 plug I will uh, I will give is um there's a site called Aurorasaurus, just like the dinosaur. Um Aurorasaurus.org. They're a, a NASA citizen science project. And I interned with them when I was uh, at UND, and uh, they collect observations of the aurora. So if you see aurora, 
go to aurorasaurus.org and submit your observation because those reports are used for science. That's really what we cool. like to hear. All right, we're going to take one quick break here before we get into the last part of our show. Um, so everybody just stay tuned and we'll hear back from Vincent in a second. All right, guys, welcome back after the break. Um, last you heard from us, we were talking about citizen science and a little bit about Steve, which is not your typical Northern Lights situation. And now we're going to get a couple words from the man himself, the Aurora guy, on how to capture this phenomena yourself. And so my first question, Vince, goes, what are typically the best times of year, just conditions in general, you know, besides there being a solar maximum, what makes the perfect mm -hmm. recipe for you to get out and take some good videos so yeah you need clear skies that's the main thing even if they are even if the aurora is great it's doing great things if it's cloudy you're not going to see it there's been a lot of times where i've seen green clouds and just been depressed because you know aurora is doing cool things up there but clouds are ruining it so you need clear skies and um you also need good auroral activity then too so if you have clear skies okay great but you need aurora so um, I'm going to talk now about the mid-latitude regions because at high latitudes, all you need are clear skies and also not a lot of light pollution either, but you'll have auroras every single night. Um, down there in Iowa and Minnesota, uh, South Dakota, the sort of mid-latitude upper U.S., southern Canada, you need some sort of geomagnetic storm, some sort of activity to get the aurora down there. So um, what I would recommend, and there's a lot of different philosophies on this, um, but look at the NOAA Space Weather Prediction Center and see what they're saying. They're the official forecasting office for the U.S. If they're saying the activity is going to be good one night, like let's say a KP5. So KP is sort of a scale of geomagnetic activity. It's not what I would use in real time, but it's good just to know what's going on. It, you know, If it's a KP5, there's a good chance. KP9 is the max. That means, okay, we have a really good chance. If it's KP1, probably not a great chance. But look at NOAA. SWPSI, that's the acronym, Space Weather Prediction Center. Uh, see what they're saying. If they say the aurora is going to be really good one night, okay, that's when you start to pay attention. Um, see what the cloud cover is near your area uh, for the forecast time. If it's a coronal mass ejection, it's sort of this like big explosion is traveling through space. It's going to hit us at a certain time. Look around that time to see if it's going to be cloudy or not. Uh, maybe make some plans to drive to some clear skies. I know some people who flew up to Alaska for the last solar storm, which is a little bit nuts, but you could even do that. And um, around that time, start checking social media. Um, that's really the best way of doing it. Check some webcams. Um, there's some good webcams in North Dakota, Minnesota, Michigan, um, and see what people are seeing. I mean, the best way of seeing if the aurora is out is actually um, tracking it like with your eyes, essentially, because there's data from satellites, there's data from magnetometers, all these different uh, data streams, but those are all proxies. Those are all estimates for what the Aurora is doing. What the Aurora is really doing uh, is going to be recorded by people on the ground, uh, sort of field reporters. So uh, checking like Aurorasaurus is a good uh, resource. Also, Facebook groups and Twitter are sort of what I use, especially during these big storms, is you'll get little flare-ups of activity, which all of a sudden push the Aurora really far south. And th that w really won't be captured in any of the data because it's so quick. But uh, Twitter and Facebook will capture that, you know, just spot on. So definitely just check online, check webcams. That's probably the best the best way of doing it. Yeah. 
one thing that you mentioned was light pollution. I was just kind of curious. Obviously, mm, that's yeah. that's one of your maybe worst enemies. So what do, what do you have to say about yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So yeah, light pollution will um, ruin your visibility of the aurora. I mean, if it's a really, really bright display, it's possible that you could see it through light pollution. Here in Fairbanks, I mean, the aurora is super bright and I, I've seen it downtown, for example. But, um, you know, down at mid-latitudes, the aurora is not as bright or it's, you know, it really varies. So you want to try and get uh, north of any big cities. And why I say north is you don't want to go south because if the northern lights are on the northern horizon, you go south of your city. Now you're looking into your city <laughs> and that's not going to work. So you want to go uh, north or east or west. Um, try and get as far away from cities as you can. There's some good light pollution maps out there. Just Google it. And um, there's a scale. It's called a Bortle scale. It measures light pollution on a scale from one to nine. Nine is the worst, and one is like pristine dark skies. Very hard to get a one. But if you can get anything below a five, you have a pretty good shot. So, yeah, just try and get out of the city. Even five or ten miles makes a huge difference. If not, uh, try and get out even further. But light pollution will affect your um, visibility of the aurora in a bad way. What other tips do you have for people who want to take photographs of the aurora borealis? <laughs> yeah, well, first off, just try and use your phone. Uh, if you think it's aurora, take out your iPhone or your Android or whatever and just try and snap a picture of it because modern-day smartphones are even better than your eyes at this point. I would not be saying that four years ago, which is kind of wild. And it's what's exciting to me, too, is this upcoming Solar Max, this high season that we're in, this is the first time we have smartphones that can take photos of the Aurora and it's really exciting. So, um, try and use your smartphone, just see what you can see with that. Um, usually smartphones can take pretty good photos. I mean, my mom has sent me photos off of our deck in Wisconsin of the Aurora and it looks pretty good. So, uh, just use your phone. If it looks green, then it's Aurora. Aurora's also change over time too. So if you're looking at, if you're looking at this sort of cloud and you're like, I don't know if it's Aurora or if it's a cloud, which is common sometimes it's hard to tell if it's really weak um if you see it sort of like bubbling or shifting or if you see it's changing over time um it's probably not a cloud and if it's staying stationary too towards the north it's not moving sort of drifting east to west then it's definitely aurora um if you want to get into sort of the advanced side of things with an actual dslr mirrorless camera there's three ingredients you need your shutter speed to be 400 over your focal length, which will keep it from uh, causing your stars to trail. If your shutter speed's too long, the motion of the earth and the stars moving across the sky will cause those stars to turn from nice round shapes to sort of oblong streaks. So 400 over your focal length. So if your lens is 20 millimeters, that's 400 over 20 equals 20 seconds. Your ISO, your ISO, um, whatever makes your image look good, usually that's around 800 to 6400. It could be a huge range depending on how bright the aurora is. And then your aperture, which is your F number, is low as possible. So for an F 2.8 lens, you want your aperture at 2.8 when you're taking your photos. And then as the aurora gets really bright, you can start adjusting your shutter speed down. So maybe from 20 seconds to 10 seconds um, to make sure the aurora is not blurring a whole lot when it's moving really fast. Even the, just the, the slow motion of the aurora um, will, cause, will cause blur in long shutter speed images. So really is pretty nuanced, but if you can just keep your shutter speed 400 over your focal length, your aperture lowest it can go, in your ISO somewhere in between 800 and 6400, you should be good to go. I'm wondering, Vince, if you've ever heard of a um, a concept called Space Day. Some people say like we should, there should be mm. one day of the year where we all decide like after this time of night, we turn off all our lights um, so that we can oh, see the yeah, stars 
really well, right? What was there that like, there's that funny story in Los Angeles. It's like 30 years ago where they had this blackout and they got all these 911 calls because people saw the Milky Way for the first time. They didn't know what it was, <laughs> thought it was a UFO. So yeah, I mean, if a blackout, I mean, the blackout happened in, in, in LA during that time and you know, they were all of a sudden seeing the Milky Way. So yeah, it would, it'd be instantaneous. My city's going to have to watch out for me snapping the power grid, uh, this summer. <laughs> then, uh, when I hear there's yeah. a good solar so storm sweeping in the, Nice thing to hear was, Vince, is that it sounds like Aurora photography and experiencing the Aurora in general is really one of the most accessible um, entry entryways into or vehicles into like cosmology and, and space science oh, yeah. is just being mm -hmm. able to experience this yourself. It's not something that you need expensive equipment for. Like you said, you can just do it with your phone. Um, and it's really something that hopefully can bring all of us together. Yeah, I would totally agree with that. It's really accessible. Um, you don't even need like extremely dark skies either. I mean, if you think about Milky Way photography, for example, you really have to get away really far from the city in order to enjoy a, a nice view of that. And then if you want to get into deep space photography, I mean, you need a telescope then. And I don't even know anything about that. I I, I throw my hands up when it comes to doing that, that sort of stuff because it's pretty complicated. I mean, you need some fancy gear. But yeah, with auroras, I mean, some of the best photos I've seen were taken with cell phones, so... Yeah, really I was, cool. was going to say my my favorite picture I've ever taken is me putting my iPhone, my five year old iPhone at that time, up to the lens or the yeah the lens of my forty dollar telescope, and I got a damn good picture of the moon. I mean, the hardest part's keeping nice. your hand still, um, but <laughs> yeah, it's it doesn't take much to start peering into what's above your head no oh, yeah i mean my phone background is an exposure picture of me like standing in the way oh yeah of that's the, right of the northern, northern lights. lights when we saw them so yeah it was this, cool. this guy nice. got lucky right he's we're, we're all getting ready to pack up and then somebody snaps a quick photo of judd and it's pretty much the best picture like it's whether it's going to be your new linkedin background or, or profile pic or anything <laughs> it's like a silhouette it looks like a superhero or something at night with the aurora above nice. his head and stuff yeah maybe it's because you weren't helping me pack up the telescope no i'm kidding it's your own telescope <laughs> yeah forty dollars when was that photo taken um april right just out of curiosity we were running up in april or maybe yeah, earlier april or may i can't exactly I remember it was, it was late spring year. like late in yeah. the spring semester yep. last year yeah okay there was a good solar storm april 23rd so it was yeah you can find the photo and it's april 23rd well, i mean i could look That'd right be pretty now, cool there was a really there was there was a really good um coronal mass ejection that just slammed us and we got like one of the largest solar storms in the past 15 years 10 15 years so yeah, he got it right. April he takes 23rd. So, he takes so many pictures. April twenty third. April twenty third on the dot. That's yeah. crazy. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well. Anyway, it. Vince, you got anything else? Um. The floor is I absolutely yours. Like absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I guess I'll. I'll just plug myself really quick. So. Wait. You know, no. I'm no. Hold on. Hold on. Nah, but I have. <laughs> if you know, I have a lot of free resources on my website. It's just theauroraguy.com. And um, if you want to learn more, shoot me an email. It's vincent at theauroraguy.com. Happy to field your questions. I do this just out of the passion of my heart. Um, and I, I love to teach people about the Northern Lights. So uh, check out my website. I have this like free ebook you can download too. And it gives all the basics in case you forgot. So that's, yeah. that's all I got. What's your website? Uh, what's your website URL for anybody who's listening? Yeah, it's uh, theauroraguy.com. Sweet, yeah, and you've got. I, I've, I've taken a peek. You got a bunch of good ebooks on there. It's gonna be good. This is a, this is a stronger solar cycle than last one too. So last solar cycle was was um it was it, it was okay, but this one is is looking a lot a lot healthier. So 
best Aurora, and I've seen these headlines too, best Aurora in 20 years, and there's some truth to that. I so think, yeah, I saw it's that. It's a good time Nat to be into this stuff. National Geographic, I think, just said the exact same thing on Instagram, best in yeah, 20 years. I think I saw that too, um, yeah. Yeah, well, I got, we're going to have to let you go, otherwise Judd's going to start planning a trip to Alaska. No, I am. <laughs> I'll be in touch. It's too you late, should. it sounds like. It's too late, it sounds like. <laughs> uh, but anyway, we got to say thanks again, Vince. It's been a great time. Mm -hmm. Answered a bunch of our questions, um, and who knows, we may, may even be having you back uh, in the future for another episode. So it's great to hear from you. Sure. That'd be awesome. Thank you. All right. Take care. All right. You too. Bye. 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 Let's just say thanks everybody for listening. Um, if you want to, like, like Vince said, if you want to hear more from him and see his videos, head over to Instagram. Um, it's at the Aurora guy, I believe. Um, and we'll make sure to link his stuff in the description of our of our show as well. Leave us a rating or review if you're listening to this show. Literally, go on Spotify and leave us a rating. And uh, tell your friends over who might not have Spotify that we are now on Apple Podcasts Oh my as well. gosh, we're on Apple Podcasts. That's a big deal. This is true. Yeah. What if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts? You might Welcome. be listening to this on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. So, um, if you are, cool. Leave a rating on there as well. Yeah. We'd love to hear your feedback. This week's listener shout out is from Maya and Maya is from Washington State. Washington State, Judd? That's far. Wow. My favorite part about the podcast is how authentic it feels. It's a space. Good mm -hmm. pun. Yeah, I don't think she meant to, but clever. it's great. For people to talk about something they care about while giving other people the opportunity to listen in and be a part of something they may not otherwise get a chance to. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. Include you guys. Yeah. Outside my undergrad classes, there aren't many people in my life who really care for this kind of stuff and don't show a love for it. So finding the podcast has really meant a lot. You just got to find someone who's equally as weird. Yeah. And like you. Like, yeah, that's yeah. kind of what happened here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and ugly too. Well, it would be weird if one of us is like weirder. attractive. Well, know? that's me, but you're weirder. Oh, okay. yeah. 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 I also really appreciate that there is time in the episodes that is dedicated to things outside of the topic and the episodes aren't restricted to one thing. We yeah, go we off go off on, on tangents. tangents. Oh Jinx. my goodness. We complete each other's sandwiches. Sentences. Anyways. Do, yeah. Anyway, she says, this gives the podcast a more casual atmosphere that I think a lot of STEM spaces don't always have, which can make them very intimidating and uninviting to people who aren't already involved in STEM in some way. This is true. Yeah, we are, we're trying to promote a space for lifelong learners here. We are. And she says her special message is honestly just the biggest thank you for having the podcast. Though listening in is just a small part of my day, it brings me so much happiness and can really turn a bad day into something better. Wow. That's touching. I mean, it gives us a reason to keep going, you know? And yeah. so we thank you guys. Please send us more of your thoughts. Yeah, seriously. It's so great to hear back from you guys. Um, cause it gives me, you know, it's hard. It, oh, it's so painful to sit down across from Judd and like try not to fall asleep or try not to whatever. Am I too mean on the podcast? No, I just think <laughs> that you're completely misinformed because I think they're here for me. Yeah, you're right. They are. They're only here for me. Anyway, if you guys want to be part of the listener, uh, shout out for the week, you can do so by periodically checking in on our Instagram. We will post links there where you can, uh, send that to our inbox or just send us a message or whatever you want. Send us a DM. Send us a DM. Get in touch with us. The next one might be you. If you're lucky. If you're lucky. But anyway, thanks a ton, Maya. And to everybody else, thank you as well. Stay curious. Good luck with whatever you guys got going on right now. We will be back in Ignition touch in two weeks. Ignition sequence starts. Three, two, Bye. Bye. one.